Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I hope this finds you beginning to enjoy summer and it is so welcome finally after such a long winter. Today we're going to have a conversation about children with disabilities and mental health and some of the other things that we need to keep in mind when caring for kids with complex disorders. My expert guest today is Dr. Katherine Steingass. Dr. Steingass is a developmental behavioral pediatrician at Nationwide Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at The Ohio State University College of Medicine. She is a member of the Complex Healthcare Team and the Medical Director for the Spina Bifida Program, as well as the Program Director for the Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics Fellowship. Her primary clinical interests include evaluation and care of children with developmental delays and disabilities, including cerebral palsy, myelomeningocele, genetic conditions, autism, and the sequelae of prematurity. She is a co-chair for the Early Childhood Special Interest Group in the Society for Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics and is involved in the AAP's Council on Children with Disabilities. Dr. Steingass received her medical degree from the Medical College of Ohio at Toledo and completed her residency at Nationwide Children's Hospital, followed by a fellowship in Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Steingass. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate I'm so fortunate to have such wonderful guests who are extraordinarily busy people. So I appreciate you carving out some time today. Well, I'm happy to talk about this topic. Yeah. Well, before we get started, I always like for people to share a little bit, like how did you get into pediatrics and particularly the field that you're pursuing? So my journey in kind of that developmental disabilities world actually started in high school. So I um, had already been interested in medicine and pediatrics, but my when I was a senior in high school, someone at our church had asked me to help with a Bible study for adults with Down syndrome. So that was kind of my first introduction to working um, with people with disabilities. And I found that it was just a really fit, something that I enjoyed doing a lot. So then the next summer when I was looking for a summer job during college, I um, started working at an extended care facility for individuals with pretty significant physical and cognitive disabilities and flex medical needs. And that, that again, was something that I just really felt where I needed to be and kind of introduced me to to this world. So I worked there on breaks from school and college and med school for five or six years. So that kind of shifted me from like the pediatrics to really wanting to specialize more in developmental disabilities, complex medical needs. And then I think the the thing that kind of clinched all that was when I was in medical school, the summer between my first and second year, the privilege of doing it was kind of an internship at a daycare for medically complex children. And that was a wonderful experience. So that we had kids with 
G-tubes, trachs, a variety of different health conditions needing various levels of, of monitoring. But we still did typical daycare activities with that. We carried their suction bag and we went out by the playground. So that, I think there was really what kept me going and kept me on that track during medical school. And it was the, the daycare was just like a mile from the medical school. So I was able to, even after the internship, go there pretty regularly just to see the kids. It was kind of my you know, little study break and help kind of remember why we're doing all of this studying. And so I think all of those kids and then the individuals I took care of at, at the filling home in college were my teachers and leading me on that. That's a great story. I love that. Well, let's move into talking about kids with disabilities, both physical and um, intellectual. And I think we've been focusing a lot in in pediatrics on mental health and doing screening, particularly for depression. We do developmental screening. But, and I think about my own practice, kids who have, particularly the more severe they are, disabilities, I wonder if we don't skip that step and because we're not quite sure, does it pertain? Is it the same? Do we need to do something differently? So, Of course, these kids have their own emotional world. So what what are your thoughts on that? I think think it often does get skipped because, you know, again, it may not, the the traditional workflow of what we're doing in clinic and a general clinic may not, may be hard for to apply to these kids, but these kids can experience mental health, like you said, emotional symptoms, just like other kids. And there's actually fair amount of literature suggesting that some of these kids have higher rates of mental health conditions, of anxiety, ADHD, sort of the same things that put them at risk for having a medical complexity also put you at risk for having other behavioral things. So even with the challenges with being able to assess these individuals, the studies pretty consistently show higher rates of mental health symptoms. Yeah, so we do need to figure out, do you have any Do you have any strategies or suggestions about how we might do a better job of screening? I mean, I think about, again, doing the PHQ we do for Mm -hmm. depression. Any thoughts on that? I think often it's going to have to be individualized depending on patient's needs. So it may require some adaptation from what the standard clinic procedures are, where maybe the nurse asks those questions and with the the teen and apart from the parent and then go from there. This may may be time that child could answer, but maybe do better with a parent helping with that communication. Or there may be times where we're relying more on the parent or caregiver report and asking, do they have concerns? I think also looking at kind of the the re-administering the screening tools, maybe looking at it more qualitatively than quantitatively, because some of those items, and I think of like the Vanderbilt, which we use for ADHD and, you know, some of the items I've, I've got back from teachers, like, or parents that say not applicable. So like, they get out of their seat frequently. Well, if they're in a wheelchair, that doesn't apply or talking excessively in a child who's nonverbal. So looking at a total score on that, they may not be above the cutoff. But if we look at qualitatively on the items that do apply, that can still be some good insight. But again, it may be a matter of rather than, you know, the typical, well, maybe the MA scores this, they tell the provider, this child's below or below the cutoff and they take it from there. It may be actually needing to look at how the child, what questions were answered and exploring that more. So probably taking a little more time than, than it is to, would be to just screen your general population. I like that <laughs> advice about qualitative. I think that makes a lot of sense. 
And I, I'm wondering if we overlook a lot of mental health conditions because kids may have lots of medical conditions, lots of educational needs. I, I mean, I think back on some kids that we were so focused on getting them through school that mm -hmm. once they graduated, things just kind of tanked because there were so many things that we we were just, our attention was someplace else. So as a specialist, do you have some guidance on how to sort of balance that, what we're seeing and kind of the overwhelming thing you mentioned, the G-tube and all the things, and how do we kind of make sure that we're keeping other things in mind as well? One thing that comes to mind, you think of this, you know, are we getting kind of overwhelmed or just mainly seeing that like, the big medical complex underlying condition is this idea of diagnostic overshadowing where like we see if someone has a chronic condition, so say they have cerebral palsy or Down syndrome. And so they may come in and the parent may have a new symptom they're talking about or like their fatigue or their difference in eating or they're not wanting to go to school. And we kind of attribute it to, well, that they're just fatiguing eas more easily because they have CP or, you know, they're that's why they're not eating as much and not looking for, well, hey, there could be another comorbid physical or mental health condition that is that we don't want to overlook, but we're still kind of seeing, oh, that's their their Down syndrome or whatever that condition is and keeping in mind that, in, especially in kids who are not able to verbalize those things, that those changes from their baseline and their behavior or their eating or sleeping or the kid who loved to go to school and now they don't. Maybe what else is taking a deeper dive into what has made that change? Because it could be a, a mood or anxiety. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, as a, a, a DBT trained clinician, do you kind of have a way that you structure an interview or that you structure your visits that you think is different than just how the primary care might approach it? So I, um, so I do some specialty DBP patients and then also in complex care, which is more primary care for individuals with, with these conditions. So I structure them a little bit differently, but I think in my template, I have more asking about where the child's functioning developmentally and then also, you know, behavioral concerns. And again, that may be asking the parents more than asking a child that we would in a general primary care clinic. So I typically will ask about are there concerns about attention or hyperactivity, aggression or self-injurious behaviors? Are there any concerns for anxiety or mood are kind of my three categories to at least try to touch on to see, is that a concern we need to explore further for that child? Well, I'm thinking too, on the flip side, sometimes all we see are the behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly kids on the autism spectrum and aggression kind of comes to mind mm -hmm. in some kids. and that overshadows everything. And I think then we become quick because it can be intense. It can be dangerous for the families. I mean, I think of some kids that I honestly feel like I couldn't even get close to. I mean, I had to like bargain to be able to just mm -hmm. even put a stethoscope or hands on. And so I think sometimes we jump to medication and sometimes big guns, things like Risperdal, and then that has its own stuff. So should we be rethinking that perspective? I think we need to, in these situations, what's important is to look at what's driving the behavior. And in order to determine how do we address that, I think you have the behavior 
to the aggression in a child with autism is a means of communicating some kind of need or distress. And that could be physical or emotional. So our job as the healthcare provider is doing some detective work to kind of sort that out. So especially when you have a new behavior like that or a worsening and from the, the primary care perspective, one of their first you know, jobs is to look for other medical causes or physical symptoms that may be causing this kid to be more aggressive, that they can't communicate. I'm constipated, my belly hurts, or maybe they're not sleeping well because they've got sleep apnea or they have a toothache. So kind of that exam kind of going through what, what you know, constipation often tends to be a culprit in these, in, in this relation. So that's a, usually a good, one of the, that and sleep are one of the first things we tend to explore to try to make sure that we're not missing something physical. And then also thinking about kind of skills or are there challenges that a child has related to their developmental disability that are causing them frustration. So we, mm-hmm. we often see kids who have speech delays who are who have more behaviors. And it's often nice to see they get some speech therapy, get some more communication skills. And we see that it, that improvement in their behavior as well. And it kind of digging down and seeing, is this kid hitting because they can't, they don't have another way to say, hey, I want to turn, I want to snap. Because if that is the case, sometimes doing speech therapy or working on an assistive, you know, assistive communication device may be the more of a priority than actually a behavioral intervention. We have to address what they are, right? Kids at parents will talk about, they're just destroying all their toys. They're just bad. They don't do it. And you get down to it, I don't think they know how to use that toy. That they're just like, to them, everything is, they know to throw a ball at everything. They just throw everything. And what they need is someone to say, hey, look what you can do with these blocks. You can stack them. And that teaching things that for other kids may have come just naturally, but for, for some of our kids with autism or, or other developmental delays, kind of teaching that through OT or things is going to be, giving them those skills is going to then decrease their challenging behaviors. I like that, Sarah. You summarize communication, frustration, and then demonstrate. I love that about the toy. I wouldn't have even I wouldn't have even thought about that. That's so clever. Yeah, you know, I had a, a patient recently that you know like they were throwing silverware and food, and down to well, they had a fine motor delayed, and they, by the time the spoon got to the kid's mouth, there was no food left on it. So it's he's frustrated. He's not getting any food. Not being bad in the sense of I swap for a food to make a mess. It was like I can't get this food in my mouth. Yeah, but and, darn, and darn it, <laughs> working on you know those fine motor skills, or sometimes maybe they need a different special spoon or something that's easier to hold on to. That some of the AAC device for a kid with a communication delay, some other adaptive silverware could make a big difference in our throwing things at the dinner table. Yeah, it makes me think of kids that are like with ADHD, maybe that have horrible handwriting because Mm -hmm. they have a motor problem and teach them to be able to dictate their work rather than write it. But I think we often get focused on, well, you have to be able to be good at everything. And we have so many expectations about you have to you have to read well, you have to do math, you have to know. so. And we all have strengths and minuses. And I think this applies to kids with disabilities, too. I mean, it's. I mean, it's true of all of us. Well, I love the adaptation. That's that's really important to think about it. So 
I was thinking about another example, a parent that brings a kid in with headbanging and maybe an eight-year-old. So if you're thinking about this, and maybe it's a child with some mild intellectual disability, like how might we think about that? Well, I, I think getting kind of that context. So those things you ask in an age in a history of present illness for the kid who's coming in with a headache, kind of adopting that. So if you're having a new behavior, is this, when did this start? When does it, is this happening in certain situations or is it across setting? Is this home, is it just happening at school or is it happening at home, at school, at grandma's house? Are there identifiable triggers? Have there been any cha- recent changes in routine or caregivers? Maybe a new, maybe there's been a substitute teacher at school or a new student in the class who's making a lot of noise and, and bothering the kids. So kind of looking at those, just getting a better picture of, we know the behavior is the head banging, but what kind of the wind wet where and then we're going to try to figure out the why and then going through is there are there physical causes doing a review of systems and ideally a physical exam the best that we can and sometimes that may be more challenging than others but doing the best that we can with that trying to make sure we're we're not missing something physical and then you and we are thinking okay this is more behavioral what can be really helpful is something called functional behavioral analysis so that is a way of looking at the behavior, its antecedents and consequences to kind of determine what function is this serving for the child or what is the child trying to communicate with this so that we're designing our intervention appropriately. So you're kind of about the ABC, so the antecedent, the behavior and the, and the consequences. So that may be a matter of having that for a couple of days, when is this happening? Or if it's happening at school, the school may have some documentation. I think that often, sometimes a piece that we get incident reports by different schools, sometimes that antecedent piece may be missing. We need that whole picture of well, what, what, happened bef- what happens before this child starts banging their head. So we're thinking of function. Is this, this kind of an escape or avoidance? So maybe the child's being asked to do a task that is hard or they're in a situation that's overwhelming, like they get into a loud a crowd and it's anxiety provoking and they, they maybe they're in a wheelchair and they can't leave themselves or say that. So that's, you know, but when they start acting out and having this behavior, somebody will take them out of that loud classroom or that loud environment. Is it to get attention or to get a reaction from someone? Is it to get maybe their preferred toy or a, or a snack? Or is it more of a sensory like reinforcing that they're just kind of seeking that input because what, how we respond to those and come up with a, with a plan to address this is going to be different depending on what our theory is of why this child is, is just having this head banging. You said a word earlier and that was detective. And, <laughs> and it sounds like we just need to do a really good job of taking a history. I mean, that's a, a big part of it. Well, I I think you already answered this earlier was this idea of comorbid mental health disorders. And you said, yes, it's common and sometimes even more common depending on the diagnosis. Is it okay to treat both conditions? I mean, it is definitely. We're going going a little off off record or off the like algorithm of our of our standards, but but really breaking it down to what what are the child's diagnoses and making sure that we're we're addressing 
all of those, there's actually you know, been observation that kids with medical complexity are more likely to have unmet mental health needs, which I think is probably not a surprise to, to anyone. There's the difficulties with screening, but then also knowing what to do if you do suspect something. And sometimes it may be harder to apply the full diagnostic criteria. Like I mentioned with the ADHD, you're going through your Vanderbilt, you're looking at those criteria and you're like, well, I have these symptoms that doesn't quite need the like six out of nine symptoms, but they also can't get up and run around the classroom or verbally interrupt. So thinking about what is our, our hypothesis of what is in driving this behavior? So is it, is it maybe some impulsivity with ADHD? Is it anxiety? Is this child become withdrawn and irritable because of a mood concern? I think you mentioned that going to Richfordall and I, that coming is that first, you know, what we think about when you think of medication for aggression because it has uh, that label, at least with kids with autism. But it may, there may be other medications depending on the child that would be a better target for their symptoms. So we have a kid who is impulsively aggressive. So those kids with ADHD who just cannot keep their hands to themselves and they're like, somebody says something and they hit them and then they're remorseful. Those kids may be better addressed by a, they want an ADHD medication than by the Risperdal. Or, or there's kids who are anxious and they're an anxiety attack and a young child can look more like an, a meltdown or a an outburst and when you've kind of detected hey i think it's when they just get they get to that point they're so overwhelmed that we need to address their anxiety and, and those kids that were we were it's a good option for those kids who are really irritable where there's sometimes asking like when you're going through kind of that detective work and the parents are like, oh, I can't find a rhyme or a reason. There's no trigger. You've done that functional behavioral analysis. And, and, and a lot of times, even if you didn't think there was a pattern there, you'll see one when you start tracking. But for some kids, it still really is like, what is triggering this? Or why does the fact that it's cloudy making them something pretty minor? So those kids who are just really irritable are often the ones where, where we all could be a helpful option, but definitely kind of a path. We have a lot of investigative work we want to do before, before starting that, since it is not a medication to be started without some thought because of the side effect. I love, I love the word investigate. I think that's a, a good takeaway. What about a lot of times the more complex the medical needs or the more severe the um, disability I think that would probably be very challenging for families. I mean, I mean, it, their whole life may revolve around providing care for these kids. What do you think about how we need to be mindful of the families, the parents, and also the siblings, the siblings who don't have disability? I, I mean, are there some things that you keep in mind when you're seeing those families? Yeah, so I think definitely there are a lot of literature showing the higher rates of your stress and depression and anxiety among, especially a lot of studies with caregivers, it's easier to find, try to look for literature on mental health and kids with mental com medical complexity. You find the studies about their parents and some on the siblings as well. In the the American Board of Pediatrics, as part of their focus on more mental health and resilience has developed some things encouraging pediatric clinicians to, to be thinking about this more for 
patients and for families of kids with chronic medical conditions and just asking, how are you doing? Um, and kind of asking those open-ended questions. Because we're, we're afraid to ask that because we don't know how it's going to be or that we feel like we, we ask that and they have a concern. We have to have an answer for it. And so, but sometimes just asking it kind of normalizes, yes, this is, we expect that this, this is a challenging situation that you're in. And sometimes just letting them have a couple minutes to share that is helpful in and of itself, even if we don't have a specific resource or an answer to a, to address that. What about when you're talking with, particularly I'm thinking of teens, as far as what that experience is like for them, and perhaps even those that have potential shortened lifespans. I mean, mm -hmm. I know I've had kids with complex stuff and it takes me a lot of courage to, I have to shore myself up to say, do you ever worry about dying? I mean, because it feels mm -hmm. like that's taboo. I mean, do you ask those hard questions? I'm not many teens talking about dying. I know a lot of the kids I see are more chronic conditions that they were maybe not thinking that so much of that about dying so much of as like their function and like having a being a normal doing normal age appropriate things is I think is what comes up much more often in my population of their period are they gonna are they gonna get to you know go to the high school dance are they going to be able to go to college are they ever going to be able to live without their parents those are a lot of concerns on parents mind obviously as well and one thing I way I can like thinking about this is um, in, in medicine, we're often thinking about, we're taught to think this medical model of you have this problem, this is our, our prescription or our treatment. You have strep, you get amoxicillin, you have asthma, you get an inhaler. But these are conditions that really don't fit well into that, that we are, we're, we're not going to make the, the Down syndrome go away or the the CP. So we're really focusing, we need to focus more on how do we kind of optimize quality of life. So the, the ICF or the, it's the International Classification of Function, Disability, and Health is um, more of a biopsychosocial model that I really like as far as thinking about how do we approach this care. So it's not just thinking about that. You know, that body structure and functions is one of the, the components of that, which is often we think of in medicine. So we have spasticity or we have a you know, hearing loss and so then you have but there's a lot of other things that are factoring to how that that child functions and that their condition is affecting other parts of their life but other parts of their life affect conditions so that could be things like their school environment their family environment their personal factors what do they enjoy what do they have opportunity to participate in so kind of focusing on, on are we going to make this this underlying diagnosis go away, but how are we optimizing participation in typical age-appropriate activities? There was an article that Peter Rosenbaum or probably about 10 years ago now, where he took the ICF and he made at least six F words that are their way, way of approaching childhood disability that my fellows hear me talk about this a lot. So you know, How's the function? How do we optimize function? What do you like to do for fun? Who are your friends? What are you doing with family? And I think that um, and that optimizing participation, and that goes back to those adaptations of things. So I, 
had a patient last week who nine is in a wheelchair. And she's like, thinking, well, when I turn 10, I'm going to be able to walk and my legs are going to work. And that is not likely to happen. Well, we can't we change and make her legs work, but we can do is So part of this was triggered by not being able to participate in field day activities at school because they were not accessible for her wheelchair. So we can't, it's not just about what do we do with that physical problem in the child, but how do we adapt the environment? How do we say, well, hey, maybe this little change could actually make it so you could participate in these activities that your friends are doing if we just move it off the grass and onto the pavement or you have someone with you to help you maneuver. So thinking about how do we facilitate that that participation by changing things in the environment. I think that is really important for promoting that mental health is that kids still get to do, helping them be able to do the, the normal kid things that they see their friends doing. I'm thinking of many words that describe you. One is a detective, which we've talked mm-hmm. about. The other is kind of a creative because you're having to come up with other workarounds, basically. And then it sounds like you're an advocate because you're advocating the school. Like, how do you make this more inclusive? And that's important. I think those are words that, you know, kind of fit in with the whole DBP, you know, what we do. And with the complex care piece, too, when we're, we're you're, we definitely, when you want to treat their mental health things, but we're going to have to be, we're not going to be able to find an article or a study that says this is the best treatment. It's going to be taking what literature we know and, okay, how do we apply that and how do we make it work for this patient? And maybe we can talk a little bit about ableism and what does that mean? Can you talk a little bit about that? So, yeah, getting more attention, the Society for Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics, a couple years of that, that is a form of, it's different than racism, but it's still something that our patients are experiencing. And that that is really a role for us to advocate and to thinking about like the language we use and something simple like saying somebody's confined to a wheelchair or versus just saying they use a wheelchair and we're just using that that more neutral language and we're not kind of putting that value judgment on it for, because for that person, that wheelchair is not confining to them. It's freeing to them that they can now have that mobility and thinking about our, and they, they kind of have the ICF things about portray things. It's, it's not, we're thinking about the problem in the person who has the disability, but, but what's in the environment within society that is making it hard. If you have, if you're in a wheelchair and there's a building without an elevator, problem, but is the problem that either your wheelchairs are the problem that building isn't accessible? Yeah, well, so many things, um, so many considerations for these kids. And I think we could probably talk about this for a long time (laughs) about, so what are some clinical pearls that you have? Because I'm sure that lots of listeners wish they had a developmental behavioral pediatrician accessible, but I know there aren't that many of you, right? Uh, There are not. There are like 700 in the whole country. So that's just amazing. I mean, anyone who's looking for any medical students are looking for a career path. Choose DBP. Well, it's, it sounds like it's been really rewarding for you and that you enjoy it and you have a passion for this. What, What takeaways do you have for clinicians out there? Well, so I, I think Mexican, what if you're having a t- coming with a behavior to think about what's driving the behavior? 
And, and it may seem like, oh, you need, you need a like behavioral specialist things, but there, there may be things that general pediatrician, maybe this kid is doing this because they're constipated and you put them on some Miralax and you have changed their life and their family. So there are often things that you can help with that are not our kind of just general medicine. If you do that some detective work and figure out what, what is going on. So there will be a lot of kids that you're able to help with that behavior. And I think that asking the, the parent and the child how they're doing and you know, we focus on the, you know, we have a limited time in visits and you have a problem list of 10 medical conditions at a time, but also asking about things like, well, what are you going to do this summer? What are you going to do for fun? What do you want to do when you're high school? Kind of things that you might also ask other typically developing patients. I'm not going to get overly focused on the, the problem list. Medical. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes you see the patient's name on your list and you're like, oh, this is going to be a hard one because there's so many things. But I mm-hmm. think probably a, a, a good you know, pointer is one to make sure you have enough time and know <laughs> that if you don't have enough time at that visit, you can always revisit it. Although it's harder, mobility might be a problem. So tele might actually be a good option for talking about behaviors. I mean, if you have a care coordinator, that's like a lifesaver. And then I think also if you have access to social work to help think about some of these other things, you you really kind of want to have a team. I I think Mm -hmm. that makes life easier. Not always, it's not always possible for everybody to have that, but I, th- I think in, as we move forward in this world about how do we deal with kids' mental health crises is we have to have teams. We, mm-hmm. It just can't fall on pediatricians. Yeah, and you mentioned the care coordination. I think that is a big piece for helping with that, that parent stress and mental health. And even just things like providing a written summary of what your recommendations were from the visit can be could be a help for that that parent stress level that they're not trying to remember the five medication changes you made, but they have they have that you know printed out from your EMR, have that written down. So if they or they need to go tell the when they go home and they have to tell the other parent. What did the doctor say? They're not trying to remember that, and that's a a relatively simple thing that can make kind of make that less stressful for a family. Well, I think about trying to navigate the medical system as a clinician. It's hard. Mm-hmm. But, you know, think about if you're not a medical person and you have these really complex medical needs and it's not just the medical piece, it's the school. And then you have to think about their social. and How does this kid really feel about the world? It's a lot. It's a lot on your plate for sure. Well, I'd like to ask my guests if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, would you have any special advice? But I would say, and this, and this may go more to my like first attending year, but this is something I've shared with fellows is that it's okay if you need to tell parents you need to look something up or you need to ask a colleague. I, I think early on, I felt my first year, as especially as an attending, I was like, oh no, I can't say I have to go talk to my attending anymore or like that I have to go stop. And I was like, I have to think of an excuse to leave this room so I can go look at my like psychopharmacology book. And over time, realizing that, you know, especially with these complex kids where there's maybe a hundred of them in the world with this diagnosis, that parents are very fine and they they appreciate it if you're like, hey, I want to look and make sure what is out there on your child's condition. I want to double check this is the best medication. I'm going to, I'm not sure what to do, but I'm going to ask the others in my group if they've had 
a similar situation that I was very nervous about doing early on that I think is actually well received by families. Better to ask. And, and I think it conveys to people that you're careful or you're like, gosh, I just want to make sure I get this right. I, there's a couple other people that I need to bounce this off of. Is that okay? That's great advice, Kathy. Thank you. I love that. Because <laughs> yes, then that is, you know, family do appreciate like you're being careful, but I, you know, that was not as early on. That's not how I felt they would have, I would feel like they're not thinking, she doesn't know what she's doing. What, why are we doing this person? And so over time, like that, that, if you're open about it, that's not really what most families are thinking. If you're just like, as long as you follow through on it. Yeah. I think that they really want to make sure that there's good communication between us and other specialists. I know that's mm-hmm. a big deal. And that's where I, like our care coordinator was miraculous in being able to help do that. So, but yeah, that follow-up piece, if you say you're going to go look something up, you better get back with them that you did look it up. So yeah, no, that's, that's where, and that's where things like patient portals and my chart have been a great, because you don't, it's not a phone call. It's, hey, I found this about your child's diagnosis and just sending it off has been really nice to be able to have it a quick way to send some follow-up information. Okay. There are some positives about electronic records. Some of them are not, but yeah, yeah, that is definitely one. Well, listen, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate your insights. And I think there's some very simple and smart things that you shared. And I think I, I like that. Don't let the diagnosis overshadow interpretation because you might be ascribing a behavior, a symptom to the diagnosis and you really haven't considered, oh, it could be like a, an abscess in your tooth. <laughs> something simple and and you could easily overlook so well thanks so much i um really appreciate you and keep doing the work you're doing thank you it was fun fun to be able to chat with you thank you bye-bye Bye. i want to thank dr steingas for this really helpful conversation i think when kids with medical complexity come in we have such a long list of things that we need to consider that we may overlook some of their other needs So here are my takeaways. Number one, again, kids with complex medical and intellectual disabilities, just like any other kid, may have comorbid mental health and behavioral health concerns, and they may even be more likely to have some of those concerns. Number two, screening for mental health concerns like ADHD, anxiety, and depression might get skipped because of either the long list of medical concerns or the assumption that these concerns don't pertain. Number three, when screening, think qualitative versus quantitative. And I thought this was really important. So for example, if you're screening for ADHD using the Vanderbilt and considering the symptoms of hyperactivity, staying in your chair may not apply to the child who uses a wheelchair but they might have other symptoms consistent with the diagnosis. So be creative about how you think about the symptomology. Number four, be careful about diagnostic overshadowing. That is attributing behaviors to the medical diagnosis and making assumptions that, oh, that's just something that happens with kids with autism when it really may be a concern that is not a part of the diagnosis and needs to be addressed. Number five, be a detective. What's driving the behavior should be the first question to ask and then dig deeper. When does the behavior happen? Where? What are some of the triggers? Do a really good review of systems and the best physical exam you can. 
Number six, consider frustration and communication barriers as drivers of behaviors. Number seven, when thinking about managing behaviors, once you've sorted out the drivers, consider adaptations and accommodations. Medications might be something else to consider, but keep the options open and broad. Can you use a communication tool, sensory strategies? And Dr. Steingast really outlined a nice overview of some of those other uh, strategies. Number eight, think about functional behavioral analysis. In other words, what's the function of the behavior? What are the antecedents? And what are the consequences? What does the behavior serve? Number nine, don't forget about the needs of the families, both caregivers and siblings. The stress and mental health of those family members are really important to consider. Just asking, how are you doing, might be a huge relief to them. Number 10, for kids with complex medical disorders, they may want to talk about how to, quote, normalize their lives. What can they do and achieve? It's okay to ask them about their hopes and dreams and to get creative with strategies so that they can get to those dreams. Number 11, check out the Can Child website and the F Words tools. So the F Words include functioning, family, friends, fun, fitness, and future. How can we help kids attain all of those things? This is a treasure trove of ideas to help kids with disabilities live to the fullest. Then the link is in the show notes, so check that out. And number 12, again, be a detective and be an advocate. Be aware of ableism and get creative with adaptations and workarounds when you need to. So again, thank you so much for all that you do. I know you guys are busy and there's so many things on our list. But, you know, again, when you're seeing kids that have lots of medical concerns, don't forget to think about their emotional lives too. I hope you enjoy the summer and that you'll join me weekly here for other episodes of Pediatric Meltdown. And I promise you awesome guests and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.